Well, good afternoon. Uh, my name is Sofiane Mrabit, and I teach here in the Department of Anthropology at UT Austin. On behalf of the Center for European Studies and my own department, I would like to welcome you all to the inaugural European Union Center for Excellence Lecture in Anthropology. Coordinating such an event uh, would not have been possible without the diligent help and support of a number of individuals and a range of academic units around this campus. For that, let me express my heartfelt gratitude to the Center for European Studies, especially its director, Douglas Bio, and its associate director, Maria Wade. I would also want to acknowledge the invaluable assistance of Adriana Dingman in the anthropology department in taking care of all kinds of bookings and reservations and the additional funding from the Department of French and Italian, the Program in Comparative Literature and the Center for Middle Eastern Studies. In a time of economic and social crises, many of us academics are immensely appreciative for almost any financial sources that enable us to organize intellectual encounters such as lecture series and the like. When I was first approached by the Center of European Studies to coordinate a series of talks in anthropology, I was not only grateful about the sudden influx of European Union money that would help us set the stage for an invaluable dialogue across disciplines, I also knew who would be the best candidate to begin generating this dialogue by delivering the inaugural lecture of our new series. Therefore, I would not have been happier when our guest today accepted the invitation to come to UT Austin. His intellectual intensity and far-reaching scholarship make any major practitioner in the field pale in comparison. Vincent Crapanzano is Distinguished Professor of Anthropology and Comparative Literature at the Graduate Center of the City University of New York. He holds a doctorate in anthropology from Columbia University. Before joining CUNY almost 40 years ago, he taught at Princeton University. His visiting teaching appointments, however, mirror the wide range of his research interests, which forces me to only mention a few ones. These include Harvard, the University of Chicago, the University of Cape Town, the École des Hautes Études en Sciences Sociales, the University of Brasilia, the University of Rome, as well as our own campus, where he taught twice in the 1980s, first in comparative literature, then in anthropology. Professor Capanzano's lists of, a list of awards basically includes every possible honor under the academic sky, including grants from the Wenner-Grant Foundation, Fulbright, Guggenheim, Rockefeller, and the American Academy in Berlin, to mention just five. Professor Crapanzano's expansive scholarship is based on fieldwork conducted in many areas, geographical and conceptual. His first book was on the Navajo. As early as the 1970s, his focus shifted, however, to Morocco, which resulted in two iconic monographs. A couple of years later, he moved to apartheid South Africa, publishing Wading, the Whites of South Africa. Hermes's De Dilemma and Hamlet's Desire 
essays in the epistemology of interpretation followed in the early 1990s, as did serving the word, American lib literalism from the pulpit to the bench, and imaginative horizons, an essay in literary philosophical anthropology in the early 2000s. Many of his books have been translated notably into Italian, French, and German. Professor Crapanzano's talk today is based on research he conducted for his book, The Harki, or Archi, depending on how you pronounce it, The Wound That Never Heals, that was recently published by the University of Chicago Press. The Harki, as I prefer to pronounce them, are those Algerians uh, who fought alongside the French as auxiliary troops during Algeria's War of Independence from 1954 to 1962. Between 70 and 150,000 were slaughtered at the war's end by the Algerian population at large. Those who managed to escape to France were incarcerated in camps and forestry hamlets some for over 16 years. The title of today's talk is Double, Triple Entrapment, the Harki story. Please join me in welcoming Professor Crapanzano. Thank you, uh, you uh, Sofian, and thank you for all of you and all of the people who have supported this for my camp remember their, name, their names, but, and um, I'm really very honored to be here. I, um, I want to say one or two things about, and I talked before actually beginning. Uh, the first thing I want to say is I'm using the word harki in, uh, out of necessity rather than because it's a term that globalizes and tends to stereotype. Uh, but it's always the anthropological dilemma. How do you talk about a people without generalizing and how do you prevent your generalizations from becoming stereotypes? So in a way, what I've tried to do both here and in the book I wrote in a number of works is not to pretend that you can do it, but what I do is try to juxtapose individual uh, speaker voices with then the more general ones uh, so that hopefully they can correct each other. And uh, I don't think today, but in some of the works I've used actually where I say one thing and they say the opposite. And then it's your choice to decide whether either or both of them are right or what have you. Um, <clears throat> that's the first thing. The second thing is just an implication here, which I think is important. And that is that although this is a very, very specific um, story, uh, its reverberations around the world are enormous. Uh, as you'll see, I'll be talking more about the children of the Harki than I will be about the Harki themselves. Um, that'll become clear why uh, in, in, when, as I talk. Um, but what I think is really important for us to realize is the enormity uh, that faces us in the future concerning not just the millions in refugee camps and other uh, such camps, um, but the children. And if one thinks about it, the number of children, the, you begin to deal with the multiples and you realize the extraordinary uh, importance of considering these children and the effects this will have on, on them. 
The other thing is that Angamben often says somewhat rhetorically that the characteristic of this modernist, postmodernist uh, world uh, is the camp. Well, I don't go so far as that unless one includes um, voluntary um, uh, camps such as gated communities. Uh, but um, I think it's very important for us to realize that this camp, these camps are extremely important uh, as a dimension of contemporary life. Uh, I'll be talking about camps that were started in France in uh, 1962, but I want to alert you uh, that these are the symbolic importance uh, and resonance of these camps starting, you know, what, uh, a few years after World War II uh, adds a dimension that we sometimes forget uh, that there are, uh, that the camp reverberated with the death camps and concentration camps and the like. So it had a, a symbolic weight that I don't think any of us can really appreciate. And the last thing I want to say is that although I'm talking about the Harki uh, in the recent issue, uh, recent issue, a recent story in the Neue Zürcher Zeitung, uh, there was an article about another camp in France uh, that still exists. I had heard about it, but um, was told that there were only a few people left in it and they were all senile. Uh, but this was a camp that was uh, started in right after uh, the the. Uh, uh, the loss of Diem Ben Fu in uh, the early 50s. And there are still something like 180 or 200 uh, people uh, who are still incarcerated in that camp. Um, so I think it's important to realize that this is a specific, what I'm talking about, but the reverberations, I think, are, are incredibly significant. Um, as uh, Sofian said, the Harkis are the Algerians who served as auxiliaries in the French army during the Algerian War of Independence, tens of thousands of whom were massacred by the Algerian population at large at the end of the war in 1962. Those who finally managed to flee to France were incarcerated in camps, some for as long as 16 years. They had been called les oubliés de l'histoire, for until recently, they had been ignored by scholars and the press and have lived, for the most part, in abject silence. The Harki story begins conventionally on what has come to be known as the Toussaint Rouge, All Saints Day, November 1st, 1954, in the Orges Mountains in Kabylia, where the first Harki units were formed by the anthropologist and reserve officer Jean Servier after two French school teachers, Guy and Janine Monerot, and a local Kaid were attacked by Algerian independence fighters, and it ends in France in 1978 when the last of the forestry hamlets or camps was finally closed. Between 200 and uh, 260,000 Algerians served in the French army uh, during the, uh, uh, in one fashion or another in the, uh, during the Algerian War of Independence. Strictly speaking, Aharki from the Arabic for movement military movement refers to those Algerian civilians of Arab and Berber descent who served on a contractual basis without the usual military benefits as auxiliary troops suppletif for the French. But the term is often used uh, today uh, for any Algerian who served with the French uh, military or police force. Although some of the Harkis sided with the French because they believed that Algeria would be better off under them, 
than independent or because they and their fathers had served in the French army, most of them, poor illiterate peasants, did so because they desperately needed what money they could earn in the impoverished war-turn Algeria. Of the, uh, many of those I talked to joined the French in anger because they had suffered at the, end, at the hands of the FLN, the militant and often brutal Front de Libération Nationale, which led Algeria to independence. Not only did the FLN requisition their food supplies, but to test their loyalty, it sometimes sent their recruits back to their villages to kill a neighbor or even a family member. Despite concerns about the Harkis' loyalty, the French actively recruited them, both because they knew the terrain and as auxiliaries were far less costly than army regulars. Despite the warning of likely bloodshed from the officers who had fought alongside the Harkis, the Gaullist government ordered their demobilization after the signing of the Treaty of Evian on March 18, 1962, and sent them unarmed back to their villages. The treaty offered them no real protection, and in the months surrounding its ratification on July 3, 1962, some 70,000 Harki, some claim up to 150,000, were tortured, mutilated, and killed by the Algerian population at large. I myself heard stories of Harkis whose throats were cut in front of their wives and children, and there have been reports of others who were impaled, roasted alive, and even forced to eat chunks of their own flesh. One Harki I interviewed was thrown after being tortured into a dry well where he was kept for 11 months, fed couscous mixed with sand and blood when he was fed at all. He was never given a change of clothing, nor was the well cleaned and his excrement removed. Many deaths were instigated by the FLN, Many of these deaths were instituted by the FLN or the ALN, uh, the military wing of the um, FLN, and by the so-called Marcien. Uh, Marcien comes from the French Mars for the month of, uh, of March. Those Algerians who suddenly identified with the FLN in March 1962 when they realized that the FLN would come to power and wanted to prove their loyalty to that organization for reasons of um, self-interest. But other deaths seemed to arise without cause, in collective furor. A son of a Harki who was a child at the time described how the villagers tortured and decapitated former Harkis. He remembers one Harki in particular, and here I cite him. He was a sergeant, so it was necessary to kill him. There was no trial, no judgment. People had only to say, oh, that one did bad things. Then they would slice him up, cut pouches in his skin, boutonnaire, they called them, um, <clears throat> of those they attacked and filled them with salt. They did this in front of the villagers. We were just kids, but they made us leave school to watch and go around singing Vive l'Algérie. Sometimes they even attacked Harki children, and they threw their heads in garbage bins. What is extraordinary about this account is the lack of identity, the impersonality of the perpetrators. A memory, it has the autonomy of a dream, a nightmare, Asen Arfi, a well-known Harki activist, describes his reaction to the attempted murder of his father as the fear cut off your breath. I am speaking of the fear, the fear, it never leaves you. Such accounts were usually followed by detailed descriptions of night flights to the French garrison where the Harkis hoped to find shelter. They're waiting, uh, uninformed, for transportation to France and their passage to France, which is always treated in great detail. We were stuffed in the hole. We were, <clears throat> we were 
We were in the hold, stuffed like cattle, Arfi told me. The women cried, scratched their faces, pulled their hair out. I remember my mother tied us, his brothers and sisters, together for fear of losing them. The men said nothing. My father never said a word. He was blocked by all that happened to him, unquote. Other accounts describe the stillborn babies that were born on the ship, the nausea, the smell. Several women referred to the entrance to the hold as the mouth of a monster that would swallow them up. Many of them had never seen the sea. One asked if the sun shone in France. The accounts usually end with the immediate disappointment in France and then a litany of horrors of the camp life. But of course, all of this came later. For the most part, in the autumn of 1962, when the final survivors were finally permitted to enter France. Overwhelmed by the arrival in 1962 of a, nearly a million Pieds Noirs, or Algerians of European origin, many of whom were thought to be members of the OAS, the Organisation Armée Secrète, which had attempted a coup in April of the previous year, the Gaulle's government did almost nothing to halt the bloodbath. As little sympathy as de Gaulle had for the Pied Noir, he had even less for the Algerians themselves. On May 16, 1962, in a now famous telegram, Louis Jacques, de Gaulle's Minister of State for the Algerian Affairs, prohibited individual efforts to settle Harkis in France, as a number of officers under whom they had fought had tried to do. And after Jacques's order was confirmed by Roger Frey, the Minister of Interior, 55 Harki families who had tried to land in Marseille were sent back to Algeria, where, as the Harkis I talked to, insisted they were massacred. In June, the Army Ministry acknowledged that threats to the lives of 4,930 4, Harkis justified their settlement in France. I have no idea how they arrived at that particular number. Thanks to pressure from the press, despite the efforts of de Gaulle, Jocques, and the Army, Army Minister Pierre Mesmer, 48,625 French Muslims arrived officially in France between June 23rd and September 28th, 1962. It is likely that another 60,000 were able to get to France by 1967, some on their own, some through the effort of the Red Cro International Red Cross and other ways which we have no idea. In France, most of the Harkis were incarcerated in military camps like Livesalt near Perpignan and Saint-Maurice-Lardoise near Avignon, forced to live in miserable conditions, subjected to abusive military discipline and constant humiliation, and offered, if any, the lowliest of jobs. The Harkis I talked to described their shock on arriving at the camps where they were herded about like cattle had to live in close quarters, sometimes in the same tent with strangers, were permitted baths once a week for which they had to pay, and at some of the camps saw the pittance they received from the government swallowed up by corrupt administrators. They remember the cold winter winds that blew down their tents or the roofs of the barracks in which they were eventually housed, the poor schools in which their children seemed to be taught only discipline by untrained teachers, the continual at times brutal fighting, the bouts of madness, the frequent suicides and the rampant alcoholism in the camps. Above all, they remember being treated like prisoners by the very people they had risked their lives for. Our reward, they sometimes say, with unforgettable bitterness. The barbed wire fences, the camp gates, and the watchtowers haunt their memories. They suggest an empty future, nowhere to go. 14,000 families were eventually moved into some 75 remote forestry villages scattered across southern France, where they worked in an enormous reforestation project. 
Though these villages and the camps were supposedly designed to integrate the Harkis into French society, they served to isolate them, to render us indivisible, the Harkis say. Those who could find work outside the camps and villages, often through personal contacts, the few that had them, left as soon as they could. Many of those who remained, some until the last of the hamlets was closed in 1978, suffered the pathologies associated with abjection. The women lived in a sort of double purda, that imposed by tradition and that stemming from the fear of venturing out into a threatening world they could not understand. Children not only suffered discrimination at school, that is, when they were able to leave the camp schools, but they lived under their father's silent and an often violent regime. They understood neither why they were treated as they were, nor were they told what their fathers had done or why. Yet despite their parents' silence, the children came to know, if only by indirection, the Harkey story, and experienced, at a step removed, their parents' ambivalence. Educated, they became their parents' cultural brokers. Today, though there is still concentration of Harkis in the south of France, often near the camps where they were incarcerated, and in the industrial north, many Harki families are scattered across France. They form what the anthropologist Francesca Capoletto has called a mnemonic community, one that is connected by memories of shared experience rather than by locale. They, and to a lesser extent their children and grandchildren, who retain their Harki identity, have remained a population apart. Condemned as traitors by the Algerians, abandoned by the French, anxious not to be identified with Algerian immigrant workers who reject them in any case, or have rejected them in any case, they have lost their bearings, their country, but not their dignity and pride. Those who escaped found themselves in a country where they were treated as half-citizens, though they have the rights of any French citizen. Mistrusted, marginalized, and subject to often virulent racism. They did not speak up. They did not write. For the most part, they lost themselves in their despair. The Harki novelist Zahia Ramani refers to them as soldats morts, uh, dead soldiers, but she, uh, it's one word. Uh, she combines soldat and morts. Yet their children have assumed the wounds they suffered and articulate their identity in terms of these wounds. They share, if vicariously, their parents' sense of having been betrayed, abandoned, and humiliated. Unlike most of their parents, they have begun to take an activist stance, forming political associations, lobbying for the recognition of the sacrifices their parents sustained, and asking for a public apology from France, which, of course, they know they will never receive. Paradoxically, and this is important, their quest for recognition, the legal and administrative maneuvers that are required, perpetuate their marginalized status. Those bureaucrats who are responsible for their affairs, however sympathetic they may be for the Harkey cause, and many are, consider their constant demands exaggerated, however justified a nuisance. In the last few years, the Harkey children had begun publishing life histories, family memoirs, novels, histories, all of which express their ambivalent uh, loyalty to France. It must be remembered that many of the Harkis and their children have disappeared into one segment or another of French society and no longer identify with the Harkis or only when it is of material interest for them to do so. Given the restrictions on origin in, French, in the French census, it is impossible to know how many Harkis and their issue are living in France today. Estimates range from 700,000 to more than a million. 
and a half, sorry. Such generally is the Harki story as it is told by French and Harki historians, but not by Algerian ones who have little sympathy for the Harki Kalabos. I, I should point out here that uh, in the school books, um, uh, there is no mention of the Harkis at all in Algeria. Uh, they are used, they are mentioned uh, by the politicians and are often made uh, used to, uh, to justify particular positions that Bouteflika and other of the leaders uh, use, blaming the Harkis for all sorts of things which the Harkis could not possibly be responsible for. There is, however, a vibrant uh, debates going on uh, on, the, uh, on the net and various blogs written by as far as one can tell, always you never know who's writing them, but um, by Algerians who are uh, who who really do debate this and think the whole thing should be uh, that they have to be recognized and so on. And there are others who, of course, condemn this position. But among the younger generation, it's very very clear that there is a a, a change in sympathy, and indeed among the Harkis themselves, in the last few years, they are beginning to relate to other French um, uh, Algerian immigrants workers in France. Uh, so they're beginning to see that they do share certain, certain commonalities which in the past uh, w such thoughts were not permissible. Um, so, as the history of the Algerian War of Independence is highly politicized, the historian's versions are most often slanted despite the claims to objectivity, either favoring the Harkis or justifying as best they can their treatment by the French. A highly placed French diplomat expressed French ambivalence towards the Harkis. Quote, our treatment of the Harkis was shameful, he told me, but I must admit that deep in my heart, I cannot but consider them traitors, even though they betrayed their own people for us, unquote. Many French officers under whom the Harkis served speak of them with respect and are highly critical of the way the French treated them. One retired general told me that he goes to a hospice 500 kilometers from his home at least once a year to visit a Harki who lost both his legs while saving the general's, or he wasn't a general at the time, life. So many years have gone by, the general told me, that we really have nothing to say to each other. We just sit there in silence, closeness, that is all. Uh, theoretically, and I just a minor theoretical interlude here. I am concerned with the way in which occasions that have not yet been articulated as events become events in socially resident narratives and as such come to represent originary occasions. The narratives themselves have, of course, their own histories, which inevitably depart at times dramatically from the originary occasions. Put another way, occasions converted into events become icons of themselves that figure rhetorically politically, in the construction, rationalization, and evaluation of one picture or another of the world, society, and self. Paradoxically, as the rhetorically manipulated iconic events depart, in quotes, further and further from the originary occasions, they reaffirm those occasions in a counter-movement that negates or at least masks their transformation. The occasions must remain, quote, the same, unquote, if the iconic events are not to lose their rhetorical, their political effectiveness. Uh, the Harki, I have 
uh, I, I have called this mode of expression a discours figé, a frozen discourse, by which I mean a discourse that is repetitive, though not obsessively or compulsively so, insistent, constricting, and lifeless, though it may be injected with emotion, which stems, however less from its reference in their immediacy, than as a reaction, I believe, to a stale recitation. Though incited by a particular context in which it occurs, it is not responsive, certainly not creatively responsive to that context. It so frames its subject matter, indeed the speakers and their interlocutors, and their diegetic, that is, their in-text counterparts, that there is little room for escape from the picture it draws, the story it tells, and the way it constructs speakers and interlocutors. Turned in on itself, on its reproduction, it seems to lead nowhere. Those Harkis themselves, the Harkis themselves, those few who are willing to talk about their experiences, tell their story in truncated versions. They rarely refer to wartime experiences. Rather, they focus on their betrayal and abandonment by the French, on the massacre, their escape to France, their incarceration in the camps and forestry hamlets, and the abuse and humiliation they suffered. They claim about what little compensation they have received for their losses. Their children refer to their father's narrators narrations, as truncated as they are, as témoignages, testimonies. They are set pieces in which particular experiences are subsumed in the collective story. They figure in the demands the Harki make on the French government, they are recited in their frequent protests, and they are repeated over and over again, ritualistically as it were, by individual Harkis at memorial services and other gatherings. Recounted with repressed emotion, they often bring tears or expressions of rage or outrage to their Harky audiences. Uh, nearly every Harky child I met, and many of the Harky wives referred to the Harky's silence and the pain it caused them. Wives seemed to accept the inevitability of this silence, but most of the children did not. Their father's silence contained a plea not to be asked. It reminded me of Oedipus, what Oedipus said at Colonus, quote, for kindness sake, do not open my old wound and my shame, unquote. And yet that plea, that silence, proclaimed the possibility of an answer. Many children could not live easily with the mystery that lay behind it. They were caught in a paradox. As sabr, silence before hardship, a kind of stoicism, is an important masculine value in Algerian society, they had to respect their father's silence as they were wounded by it. Many of the imaginative possibilities that silence suggested were no doubt intolerable and immediately repressed. None of the children ever told me that they wondered if their father had been a torturer or had betrayed members of the family. Still, I believe, imaginative possibilities left their trace. Given the Harkis' emasculation, I sometimes felt that their silence might well be the last token of their masculinity, a potentially devastating legacy. I'll focus the rest of my talk on the Harky children, specifically on those children, both men and women, now middle-aged, who spent their childhood in the camps and forestry hamlets. They're sometimes called the hinge generation. With rare exceptions, they all stress, as I have noted, their father's silence about the war, their war experiences. They cast their fathers as victims, broken men, devalued, dishonored, emasculated, lost in themselves. They remember them sitting alone or in groups, leaning against a tree or wall, ruminating. Some speak of their father's depression, their drinking, their drunken rages, which were usually directed against them and their mothers. They were often beaten. 
Rarely did they want me to meet their fathers. They won't talk to you. They didn't talk to us, they said bitterly. They're old. Why bother them? Why bring up a painful past? Those who did introduce me to their parents, and and some did, tended to be very protective. They would urge their fathers to repeat what seemed to me set narratives, fragmentary reminiscences with little narrative elaboration and even less introspection. Seldom did they say, I remember, and go on to recount something that had happened to them in particular. They tended to dwell less on what they had experienced in Algeria and more on their abandonment and incarceration. It was as though they expected less from the Algerians than from the French. Still, they expressed their loyalty to France. Those who had them uh, proudly showed me the citations and medals they had been awarded. I became, a long story about why I became interested in the Harki, but I do recall at one point uh, reading a novel that uh, was written by a Harki author. It was, um, it was an odd novel because it was written in the style of an adolescent boy's war story book. But the story really had to do with um, a, one, of the Harki minister, one of the French ministers, actually I think it was, they were referring indirectly to Mesmer, who had moved to the countryside and uh, was writing his memoirs. And the Harki, uh, this one lone Harki, decided to take over the, uh, the, um, uh, the house and, uh, capture, keep, and, 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 take, and, and keep the, uh, the, uh, the cabinet minister as a um, hostage. Um, in the end, and, um, and it is interesting, the relationship between the two of them, but that's beside the point here. In the end, um, the, um, the, CN, uh, the CRS, the, guard, the, um, the, um, the uh, French uh, security police, um, invaded the house and they killed the Harki. And uh, they discovered, according to in the novel, that in his knapsack was the flag of France. And I think that perhaps expresses a kind of ambivalence that uh, was characteristic in less dramatic uh, uh, forms, uh, their, their experiences. When I asked Harky fathers why did they not want to talk about the past or why had they not talked to their children about it, they almost invariably said, why bother? The past is the past. It was written. By written, they meant it was in God's hands. And then they would add protectively, why should we burden our children with what we went through? At such moments, they spoke to me as an older man, a father who would understand, who would appreciate their resignation before the forces of history, which as destiny they knew they could never understand. Otherwise, I was immediately cast, as I was by the children, as someone who would reveal to a larger public what they had undergone. They were serving as witnesses, Often their expectations of what I could do for them were extravagant, surprising for a people who had been forced into indomitable realism and however paradoxical and, and, and at times whining stoicism. Like their father's deadened and deadening stories, the Harky children were also consumed by their story. But unlike their father's narratives, they were not all consuming. They were a story apart. It was a monologue that once triggered was oblivious to contextual convention and constraint. A Harky son was stopped by the police for a drunken driving. He refused to take a breath test and locked himself in his car. When the police finally forced him out, he started fighting with them, claiming they had no respect for the Harkies and went on, at least he tried to go on, to tell them how his grandfather, who was rotting away in a former forestry hamlet, had sacrificed himself for France. 
Another was refused a subsidized apartment, which was then given to an immigrant worker. He told me and a friend of his at Pied Noir who supported the Harkey cause that he had been refused the apartment because he was a Harkey and went on to tell us, that is, until we stopped him, how the Harkey had been betrayed by the French. His story, a set recitation, had little to do with the, his complaint. In fact, we discovered when he had calmed down that he had been refused the apartment because he and his wife's earnings exceeded the limit for the subsidy. In my experience, there's a marked difference between the narratives told by men and women of the children's generation. Both express outrage, both keen their mistreatment, how they have been dishonored, how they have suffered from racial prejudice, how the government has done little for them, and how the government has done more for immigrant laborers from North Africa, how the French would prefer if they disappeared. We are their bad conscience, they often say, not without a show of contorted pride. Almost always, sometimes in the interviews, they assert their loyalty to France. For the most part, they vote for the right, but not the extreme right. At least in the South, they dissociate themselves from the Islamists. Most of them are often nominally Muslim, though many of their aged fathers now spend much of their time in the local mosques, if there should happen to be any nearby. They seem to take solace in figuring their story, that is the parents, in the great sweep of history that they do not understand and know they will never understand. Such is the way of Allah. Their children, however, who do not share their father's sense of transcending drama that defies understanding, find themselves cast in a world in which destiny has given way to chance and luck. They have only their story, frozen as it is, the wound it depicts and perpetuates that binds them together for the moment. They know, despite themselves, that with time, that story, those wounds, will become at best a footnote in history. For the most part, the men's stories are less personal, less developed, less emotional, more fragmentary, legalistic, and political than those of the women. They are centered on the Harkey cause. The men take pleasure in their bureaucratic manipulations and political machinations. Each success, however trivial, is a conquest. They spoke to me in monotone, soberly, avoiding painful memories. When they did speak of such memories, they did not center them on their families, on the shame of their fathers, as much as they did as on life in the camp, schools, and reformatories. They spoke of being seated apart in school, of arbitrary punishments, and of being beaten by their teachers. In a way, they were emulating their father's style, but coupled with French discretion. At least among the more educated, they punctuated their observations with summary moral conclusions so cultivated in French schools. With the exception of those few who had had psychotherapy, they were not particularly introspective. When some event, less often my probing, drew them out of themselves, they experienced so deep a wound, so intense an emotional outbreak, that they seemed on the verge of losing control. Belkasim, a builder in his late 40s, an activist, took me to the abandoned forestry hamlet in the Montagne Noire, north of Carcassonne, where along with his mother and sisters he had spent his childhood. About seven kilometers from the nearest village, with a population of a couple hundred, it was certainly the most isolated place I had ever been in France, and I know France quite well. And when they sent us here, they claimed it was to integrate us into French society, Belkasim told me bitterly as we approached the hamlet. It consisted of stone huts that reminded me of pigsties, above which stood a robin's egg blue block house where the commandant and his wife had lived. They were notorious for their abusive discipline and their robbing the harkies of what little they earned. 
It's now the Commandant's hunting lodge, Belkasim observed cynically. When they, shut it, when they shut the camp down, he was able to buy it for 6,000 francs. With the exception of a couple German hippie squatters, the village was deserted. Shaking his head sadly, Belkasim looked at the abandoned cars and the stacks of old tires that lay at the entrance to the hamlet. With tears in his eyes, he showed me the hut where he had lived, the school he had attended, the one well, the field where he had played soccer. What I found most trenchant in Belkasim's commentary, as I had among other Harky children who showed me the camps where they had grown up, was despite their misery, they suffered a childhood nostalgia. I make this trip twice a year, Belkasim told me at lunch. It is my memory, my pain. He explained that his mother had been sent to the forestry camp where she and her children had nothing to do as a punishment because she spoke French and she had interceded on behalf of other Harkis at a camp where they had been first sent. It was the most infamous for the infirm, the insane, alcoholics, and widows. It's an interesting juxtaposition of women and the infirm, insane, and alcoholics, but that is May. Belkasim told me after independence, the FLN had slit his father's throat in front of his mother without ever saying that he had also seen his father's throat slit. He would have been three or four at the time. He said he could never forget it. In the car on the long drive back, Belkasim, who had been drinking heavily at lunch, sat silently ruminating. Finally, he said, were it not for <clears throat> his mother, he would kill himself. She is a strong woman who says we have always to look ahead. I can't do that to her, but she is old. I don't know what I'd do. He stopped himself. Later, after receiving a business call on his cell phone, <clears throat> he told me about the protests he was helping to organize. And forgetting that he had already told me about them, he went on to tell me about other protests he had been in. Women, the activists, tend to express themselves personally in terms of their own experiences and those of their parents, insofar as they know them. Many are quite independent. Several are leaders of Harki associations. Most are only nominally Muslim. Many have feminist leanings, though they are generally subservient to their husbands and at times their sons. They stress the importance of their children's education. Though the majority are married to Harkis, some are married to French or other North Africans. One woman who had been so badly abused by her husband that she fled and managed to raise her three daughters on her own told me proudly that all three of them had married or were living with European men. The women with whom I spoke showed far more interest in what happened to their parents than did the men. For them, their particular stories are exemplary. It is noteworthy that the novels <coughs> and memoirs written by the Harkey women generally take the form of a quest to learn their father's story. Though they are capable as the men, <coughs> I wonder if they could get some water. <coughs> and though they are capable, as the men, in describing how the Harkis as a group have been wronged, they tend to respond to their mistreatment as a personal affrontery. With rare exceptions, they cried, as did some of the men at some point in my interviews. Though I do not want to minimize their pain, I sometimes felt that their tears were generated less from immediate memory than the mediated by their discourse, its rhetoric. Several of the women I interviewed seemed to use their stories as a way to generate emotions and were occasionally carried away by them. Celestine Roland was one of these, an activist and feminist in her late 40s when I interviewed her. She is passionately eloquent. Born in Algeria, she and her family came to France in 1967. 
when she was nine and were billeted in a camp near Aix-en-Provence. Unlike many of the other Harky children, Celestine attended the lycée and passed her baccalaureate. Today, she is married to a former foreign legionnaire, a quiet man who is proud of her activism. Celestine began our first interview, a near monologue that lasted more than four hours, describing how she came to have a French name. Her mother, an orphan, was raised by her paternal uncle and aunt, who married her off to an older man when she was 13. At 14, she had a daughter, Celestine. My mother did not want to stay with him, Celestine explained, because she was traumatized. She told me that for days she lay on the floor weeping. Though she had lived in misery at her aunt's house, she wanted to be with her family. She told her husband, I want to be with my relatives or I'll kill myself. He was not an abusive man. He never beat her. He gave her her freedom, unquote. Two months later, Celestine's mother married again, this time to an older cousin who drank and beat her. It is this man Celestine calls father. He had been a harky courier, not a fighter. After independence, he was arrested by the Algerians, tortured and imprisoned for five years until the International Red Cross managed to free him and send him and his family to France. Celestine stressed her mother's suffering. She had also been a courier and was continually insulted during the years of her husband's imprisonment. People would spit at her, Celestine said angrily. I should add that a number of women did act as couriers, and in certain instances they were actually uh, warriors carrying arms and so on. But that, that was fairly rare. When Celestine was 16, she was informed... <coughs> excuse me. <coughs> ..that her papers... <coughs> were in order, were not in order, and that if they were not regulated within six weeks, she would be deported. She was terrified. Where will they send me, she asked the gendarme who had brought the order. To Algeria, he said. But where in Algeria? It's a big place. I have no family there. That's not my affair, the gendarme said. <clears throat> Stelestine was virtually reenacting the occasion. And then, dramatically, she switched emotional registers as she went on mechanically to describe in excessive detail the bureaucratic entanglement she found herself in. It turned out that when her stepfather came to France, he neglected to include her among his children. Thus, as she bore a name, the, the name of her real father, she had no legal status as a Harky child. She cried as she told me this. She was panicked. Her family was panicked. The arrival of gendarme always terrifies us, she said. Finally, a camp administrator and his wife intervened and arranged for her naturalization. I thought I was already French, but they had to make me French again, what I was to begin with. And this, by the way, is a stock complaint by almost every Harky story. As the administrators prepared the papers, he told Celestine that she could change her name if she wanted to. It hurt me not to have the same name as my brothers and sisters. You are nothing. You are not configured. You are not part of the family. You have no bonds, no attache. A little girl, you don't know who you are. Celestine was despairing and quickly changed the direction of her story, announcing that she didn't know who had paid for her naturalization. Calm again, Celestine went on. I revolted. Why me? I should have the same name as my father. I suffered enormously from the difference. My father had made it clear from the time I was two or three that he didn't want me to call him father. Still, I wanted to be accepted, to be treated as family. I said, yes, I'll change my name. I'll change my name because I, I'm no one's daughter. I want to be someone. 
Celestine took the most French name she could think of. After all, I'm in France. It's my land, ma terre. I could sense her anguished, embarrassed ambivalence. Though a hearty activist, she had chosen a French name. As she tells it, voluntarily, unlike many hearty children who were forced to take French names. I don't want to reduce Celestine's pain or Bocassim's or that of any other harky to mere rhetoric, though, as I have argued elsewhere, pain is perhaps the strongest indexical, for it is unquestionably determines the context in which it occurs and, or evokes as painful and thereby prescribes a certain etiquette. Certainly, the harkies use their pain to elicit sympathy, but this pain serves also as a ground for political action, dramatically for protests. While such protests may serve to alleviate some of the pain, converting, as it were, personal rage into social outrage, it also serves to intensify that pain and the rage with which it is associated. Put, no doubt, too simply, the wounds the Harkey suffered <clears throat> and passed on to their children are supported, if not encouraged, by the political action that seeks relief from that pain. Having said this, I now want to discuss the wound and by the way, I use wound instead of trauma throughout the book. Occasionally I'll use trauma if one of the uh, people I talked to used it uh, because I want to avoid the, uh, the psychology and the pseudo-psychology, the ethno-psychology of trauma that seems to uh, be aired continually within uh, 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 the United States. Um, I want to discuss the wound and its unwitting legacy to the progeny of the wounded. I begin with several quotations from Ramani's extraordinary novel, Mose, which recounts poetically her quest to come to terms with her father's death. A veteran of World War II, a harky, a man who would not talk, Mose committed suicide after attending an Armistice Day ceremony. Ramani writes, Mose had died before his death, his tears, there his death that groans standing the night, outdoors, inside, alone or with us, an ailment, an affection of tears, a death that endures. He was only this outburst without voice, a groan like, a de like the deaf with an open mouth. The unsustainable look, this extreme figure of guilt, I want to rid myself of it. I don't, however, want to render it innocent. What can one do with this error? that which I bear, which is not mine, and which I cannot forgive, how to escape alone a shouldered guilt, the life given in the cradle, Moses' era, I have to say, is my flesh and my custom. Impassioned, Ramani captures the expressive silence of the Harki and its seemingly inescapable effect on their children. She is one of the few Harki children who admits the tortured complexity, the resentiment in their relationship with their fathers. It is the effect of what I have called elsewhere the dead but alive father, the soldat mort, who one, who, one who exhibits in silence and rage the effects of his wounds, the dead but alive father who through his silence, his enraged silence, cannot reveal the nature of those wounds. Wounded, the father, however knotted by conflicting and intolerable experiences, knows at some level what those experiences were. He can regret he can justify, he can self-righteously blame the French or indeed the Algerians for what they have done to him. How overwhelmed by what Flaubert calls the dark immensity of history and others simply destiny, he has to assume some responsibility. But the children can take no responsibility for what they inherited from the cradle on. 
They are doubly wounded. They bear the stigmata of their father's fatal act and the pains they themselves have suffered in consequence. They have also experienced the effects of their father's wounds, a silent but emotional transfer, without knowing what they were. They cannot resurrect them in their particularity because they never knew or experienced them in their particularity. They cannot even repress them in their particularity, though no doubt some of their effects... um, They are tortured by an absence, an unknown. They can never know, but only imagine. They have, perhaps, to defend themselves against their fantasies, if only because they evoke an absence. They strive to know, particularly the women, or they deny any interest, or they simply act for their cause. What they all have, the seekers, the deniers, and the activists, is a generalized story, one that contains, to be effective, fragments of particular stories, hence the importance of witnessing, but is in its generality removed from the particular, from that which can be possessed and transmitted in its particularity. I, <clears throat> I spent several days at Azadine's home. Azadine is a particularly sensitive man in his late 40s and far more introspective than many other Harki children. He often refers to the pain, the wound the Harkis and their children fear, feel, feel. He bears that pain the pain of the fathers, he called it, with singular intensity. He recalled crying as he lay in bed at night, thinking about how his father had been humiliated that day by the camp authorities. Azadine had arranged for me to talk uh, to several old harkies whom he thought I should meet. There was something a bit staged about these meetings, but they turned out to be among the most interesting I had. Azadine and I discussed each of the harkies before and after my meeting with them. He saw each of them as representative of one facet or another of the Harki experience, torture, witnessing the massacres, terrified night flight, arrival in France, camp life, and the near-impossible search for work. Between our meetings, Azadine and I talked about many things, as we would with any friend or acquaintance. My work, his work, French politics, American politics, September 11th, the Iraq War, the Islamist sports, a project for a memorial at Rizalt, and violence in Algeria. We also talked about women's liberation. Azadine insisted on the equality of men and women, though <clears throat> thought it important for husbands to take an active role in family life, and like most Harkis I met, opposed wearing the veil. And as I lived in his house for uh, a few days, I have to say that he maintained that, that stance. More abstractly, we talked about preserving memory and the passage of trauma, Azadine's word, from generation to generation. Many of our conversations focused on childhood, Azadine's, his wife's, his children's. The subject of our conversations oscillated between the impersonal repetitions of the Harkey story and the personal. As I listened to Azadine switch from personal to impersonal, I felt that the impersonal deflected the pain of the personal. No doubt there is some truth in this observation, but I think that such a psychological explanation blinds us to an important dimension of the Harkey story, the responsibility it demands. The Harkeys have a continual responsibility to recount their collective story, and this overrides, I believe, any desire they may have to tell their own story. Their identity rests on this responsibility. Harkey children often talked about the responsibility they have to their fathers, to the Harkeys of their father's generation. The story can never, I believe, satisfy the Harkis' desire to know, their curiosity, indeed their wish to forget, nor can it protect them from the fantasies, the what-if, that accompany their story. 
I have related this failure to an absence, the absence of particularity. What I would like to ask is the function, the rhetorical function of the particular in stories such as the Harkis. It is more than decorative, it is interpolative, emotionally so, in the way the generalized can never be. It resonates, charms the narrator's interlocutor, and thereby, in a reverse movement, the narrator, him or herself. So understood, I want to argue the particular mass, the unbridgeable gap between nar the narrative and the narrated, an absenting, abs an absenting absence that is carried forth by the winds of time until it finally disappears in oblivion. So long as the particular, a bit of personalized knowledge, gives the illusion of plugging the gap, the absence, it denies space for play of imagination and that, uh, that can liven the story. It can only memorialize what the Harkey storytellers do not know and may in fact not want to know as it memorializes what they do know and may not want to know. It can as such only be a frozen, lifeless discourse. What is extraordinary in, in what my congenital pessimism leads me to ignore, the many Harkey children who have managed to overcome the constraints of this discourse and the social situation in which they found themselves. To succeed in professional terms as writers, doctors, historians, filmmakers, high-level fonctionnaires, teachers, and journalists, and more important, in their personal lives. Thank you. <laughs>